What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Indirect Message. I'm Lacey Green. All my sex geeks out there, I've got a super interesting deep dive for you today into a rather misunderstood relationship style. Polyamory. Polyamory, of course, is an alternative to monogamy. It's where each partner in a couple has the freedom to pursue outside romantic relationships. And joining me to discuss this will be Jeffrey Miller. He's a public intellectual and an evolutionary psychology professor at the University of New Mexico. Now, if you're more familiar with poly, maybe you're poly yourself, maybe you've done some research and reading about it, this conversation, you know, might be a little bit different than other approaches that you've heard, because we're going to be looking at polyamory primarily through an evolutionary psychology lens which I think is a largely untapped perspective to help make sense of our sexual and romantic behaviors, our norms, and even our feelings. So if you feel uncomfortable or challenged today, I was too. There's always more to learn. So let's have a learning experience together. All right, let's get into it. Oh yeah, it's totally the black sheep of psych. It's incredibly hard to get a job if you study evolutionary psychology. I think there's a lot of ideological bias against it. You know, psychology historically has been kind of a very lefty, progressive science. It's where it's where people go when they want to understand people and they have empathy and they want to help people. And, you know, the most common... Um, PhD in psychology is clinical psych, which is all about, you know, talk to people, help them sort out their problems. And a lot of people in psych aren't really prepared to kind of take a step back from the concerns of the day or the the sort of worries of individual people and go, what's the broader context of all this? Like, how does human nature in general work? How can we connect psychology to the other uh, natural sciences and the other behavioral sciences, and how do we really get traction at understanding like what makes humans distinct from other mammals or other primates? And so we just we're we're square pegs in round holes. We don't really fit, you know, into the the main ethos of at least American psychology as it's been the last few decades. You said it's psychology is very lefty, and that's part of the equation here. Is Evo psych scene is not lefty. Evolution yeah. seems very like it's a progressive idea, right? Well, this is the irony that if you believe in uh, evolution from the neck down, right, that's okay. That if you think the human body evolved as compared to um, being created by some omniscient deity, then that's okay. But, but if you talk about evolution affecting the human mind or like mate preferences or human emotions or how we think or how we tend to interact socially. Uh, that's kind of taboo. And it's been taboo um, particularly since about the 1970s when the whole blank slate ideology kind of took over psychology and said, mm. we're not going to talk about genes. We're not, not really going to talk about individual differences or sex differences or any of that. That's that's kind of exiled from psychology. Blank slate, meaning like 
everybody is a product of their socialization, mostly or entirely. Yeah, Blank Slate. I mean, Steve Pinker's book back in, I think, 2000 called The Blank Slate is a great, great resource on sort of how did that view come to dominate? That You know, the view that basically everyone's born a blank slate in the sense of having no innate nature, either as a human, but also no innate nature as an individual among humans in terms of like heritable traits, in terms of like your mom's and dad's genes influencing right. what kind of personality you have or what kind of interests you have. So the view that it's really only the family environment, schooling, the media that makes us who we are as humans and makes us different from each other as individuals. I guess part of it maybe is like there's this idea that we're blaming our biology for, you know, social problems or something. And it, it implies that if this is how we evolved, then we can't change it. Yeah. And it's it's very strange because there's such a double standard about it. Like, in, I remember um, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a big debate in the, the gay activist community about should we embrace the idea that some people are kind of born gay versus born straight. And the kind of consensus became, it's actually politically better for us if we say people are just born gay or born lesbian or born bisexual, because that's a way of anchoring our human rights to say, this is not just something we chose or that is learned or that is like spread like some kind of gay virus, you know, by, by the media. And that makes sense. I really, you know, do think sexual orientation has a big um, kind of innate and partly genetic component. Mm -hmm. But it's so it's so weird to be like, okay, sexual orientation is allowed to be innate, but, but like nothing else. <laughs> gender itself isn't. Or yeah, it's very right. Funny. Yeah, yeah. I guess the sex differences stuff is where I first encountered the the weird stigma around evolutionary psychology, like. I didn't really look into it much when I was younger, but when I actually wanted a deeper understanding of what was going on there, you know, it doesn't say that our social environment doesn't have any uh, doesn't have any influence on our behavior. You know this, <laughs> but you know, there's a bigger context at play, and and we should look at everything. Yeah, and I think it's actually enormously, you know, useful. I think, um, you know, Peter Singer, one of my favorite moral philosophers, actually wrote a book called uh, "The Darwinian Left." back in the uh -huh. 90s, pointing out there's a lot of potential overlap between evolutionary psychology and a kind of leftist progressive political agenda. Yeah, right, so right. if you look at issues like um, the fact that, uh, you know, in prehistoric conditions, childcare tended to be quite a bit more communal and social, and you had involvement from a lot of people outside the nuclear family. Well, you could run a good progressive argument for why we should pay more attention to um, childcare and not put all of the burden on kind of moms isolated in suburban family houses, right, to do all of this. Right. Even progressive arguments about uh, inequality and wealth distribution, you know, you, can, you could bring in the, the observations from evolutionary anthropologists that say in small-scale tribal societies, people are actually pretty good at reducing wealth disparities and being kind of communalist and how they share things and supporting norms that like nobody becomes too dominant or too bossy. Like there's, there's all these 
ingenious hunter-gatherer ways to kind of equalize status. And, and, and the sad thing is, you know, the lefty progressives aren't aware of any of this because they're, they're like deterred by the stigma of, oh, oh, we can't study evolutionary biology or animal behavior or anthropology or genetics because that's like the slippery slope somehow towards like voting for Trump or whatever, you know? Right. Right. I think that your background is really an interesting framework for understanding poly. By the way, are you like, what's your political orientation? Are you, do you consider yourself left or right? Or, I mean, I feel like I've seen you kind of have views all over the place. I'm, I'm a pretty complicated mishmash of like pretty far left on certain things and pretty far right on others. And I think of myself as kind of an alt centrist and alt centrist. Wait, what's the alt part? Um, alt basically means pretty radically pro-free speech and willing to entertain lots and lots of different different ideas without th- that are kind of outside the Overton window. So, like, I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't like being pigeonholed. I have a big libertarian streak. Um, I have a big like New Age kind of Burning Man streak. Um, uh-huh. I have a like open relationship poly streak, sex researcher streak. But on the other hand, I have a huge respect for like civilization and tradition and um, family values. And, you know, the older I get, I think the, the harder I get to, to pigeonhole. We were emailing a little bit before this, and you've been on a lot of mainstream podcasts talking about poly. And you had mentioned that people didn't quite get it. You know, I was just kind of curious about your experience speaking on a, in a really mainstream platform like Joe Rogan or Sam Harris about a relationship style that I think is quite misunderstood. Yeah, it was funny. Like Sam Harris and I did actually a live event in Texas a few years ago. So oh, it there was, was a, live. There was a big audience. There was about 1,500, 2,000 people in the audience. And cool, cool. Sam Harris and I were up on stage in little chairs and having a, a chit chat for, I think, maybe at least two, if not three hours. Wow. And you know, we spent a good half hour talking about Polly. Yeah. And he was clearly quite uncomfortable with it, you know, partly because like he's a very happily super monogamously married guy. And I'm aware that whenever I talk to an interviewer and they're married and their spouse, you know, might listen in later. Oh, oh. That they're kind of under enormous spousal pressure to kind of keep poly or open relationships at, at arm's length. Right. That's something that's like, maybe that would work for you, like weird people like you. But that, of course, that would never work for me or my spouse. And I, right. So there's a lot of reassuring of monogamous values. Mm-hmm. And then there's all the usual misconceptions about poly that you've probably, you know, encountered yeah, yeah. I um I'm engaged, so you know, he's not going to listen in on this and think it's weird if I entertain the notion of poly. So that I guess that's the upside of being in the sex ed world, but yeah, I mean, the mis- the misconceptions that I've encountered about poly um okay, maybe they're not the misconceptions that you're assuming. Um because I think the main one is that anyone can do it. I, I encounter a lot of people who are just like, yeah, if you have the willpower, and you want to be poly, then you can. And I'm just like, no, you need to have more tools than that. Um, I'd be curious what the misconceptions you come across are, because I, you obviously know way more about this than I do and have a lot more experience with it. 
I wouldn't necessarily say say I know way more about it because bear in mind, like I'm I'm 56 and I really only like turned poly around age 50, right? Okay. So I am I am not like poly OG. I'm I'm pretty <laughs> I'm pretty new to it. I have taught a number of courses about alternative relationships and I've written a bit about poly and I think yeah. I've read virtually all of the scientific literature. Wow. About open relationships and there's not that much of it yet. Yeah, that's there's true. Probably only 200. <laughs> Maybe 200 papers on poly compared to there. There's at least 50,000 papers on homosexuality by now. What? What? Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's kind there's of interesting. A, there's way more scientific attention on gay and lesbian sexuality than on open relationships. It's understandable. I think it's understandable. Well, it sort of is historically, but actually, you know, you and I both know, like statistically, open relationships are more common than being gay or, or lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of understudied. But to, to bring it back to what you said about, uh, yeah, one stereotype is, oh, anybody can do poly. Yeah, you're right. No, it, it's a really steep learning curve. There's a lot of kind of factual information to learn. There's a lot of like best practices and strategies and tips and hacks to learn. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of emotional self-control that you need to learn about like how to manage jealousy and envy and so forth. Yes. And uh, you also have to get a pretty thick skin about, you know, living in a, a, a monogamist culture that has much less tolerance for polyamory than, than it does for like being gay or lesbian or bisexual or almost any other. Um, at this point, anyway. Yeah, at this point. Right. I'd be curious to know, I mean, what do you think makes someone really successful at this compared to, I would say, the majority that try and, and don't quite pull it off? It takes some humility to be curious about the fact that like, all relationships are hard, no matter yeah. who it is. All relationships between humans are hard. And if you go into a relationship using a kind of monogamist default, you're kind of playing on easy mode in a way, because what you're trying to do is do the same kind of relationship that you've seen your whole life around you in TV and movies and that permeates, you know, the main culture where you kind of already know what to expect. You know, the typical trade-offs, you know, oh, these are like the top 10 frustrations monogamous mm -hmm. people tend to have. These are the reasons why people get divorced, et cetera. If you go into open relationships, you don't have any of that very well developed. You don't have media role models. You don't have clear social norms. You don't even have that strong a consensus within kind of consensual non-monogamy about what, like, what are best practices. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to make this stuff up as you go along. And the more you read about it, the better you do. The more friends you have who are into it, the better you do. Uh, the more personal experience you have, the better. But it is hard. It is doing relationships on hard mode. Mm -hmm. What's the hardest part for you? I would say, you know, the hardest part um, initially was figuring out how do you manage sexual jealousy? Yes. Right? I think that's the big one. <laughs> and so, you know, my now wife, Diane and I were long distance for five years. 
Okay. So I was in New Mexico. She was in England, 5,000 miles away. Oof. And we did like 26 round trip flights across the Atlantic to get wow. the relationship going. <laughs> oh, that's romantic. It, yeah. And it, it worked and we survived. But, um, you know, we were each dating other people and she had been kind of, she had a lot more experience with open relationships than I did. So figuring out um, how to manage jealousy in a way that accepts that like jealousy is an evolved emotion. It's a legit emotion, just like fear and anger. It's not just a social construct. It has deep evolutionary roots. It has clear adaptive functions in terms of managing relationships and protecting relationships. Mm. And it can be enormously helpful to know the origins of these emotions in order to understand them and manage them better. Can you give me like the Cliff's Note version? So for example, one function of sexual jealousy for particularly for males is paternity certainty, having the confidence that if there's like my woman, I'm having a primary pair bond with some woman, right? Sexual jealousy is basically about keep all other male sperm out of her reproductive tract so <laughs> she doesn't get pregnant with some other dude's kid and then I raise it, you know, mm -hmm. as an unwitting stepdad. Right. Right. That's a major function of sexual jealousy. Hmm. But it's not that relevant anymore in the modern world because we have contraception and we have paternity testing. So I can be confident, oh, it's really my baby. And, you know, I can be confident that if, if a woman's being safe in terms of contraception and condoms and IUDs or whatever, that the actual risk of, you know, unauthorized pregnancy is, is actually very, very low. Yeah. So that immediately removes one of the major functions of sexual jealousy. jealousy. What are the other functions? Second function is minimize sexually transmitted infection risk. Uh-huh. Disease right? prevention. You just like... You don't want cooties. Uh -huh. <laughs> so if, you know, if you've got a male or female partner and they're having sex with other people, generally speaking, yeah, we've evolved this kind of sexual disgust, like anti-pathogen disgust that protects yeah. against cooties. And there again, if you're having safer sex and you're being cautious and everyone's getting tested regularly, like your risk of getting anything is like extremely low. And if you don't buy into the, you know, demonization of STIs, acting like, oh, getting an STI is the worst thing you could, that could possibly happen. Like for most STIs, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. It's really not. It's not as bad as getting like a winter flu mm -hmm. for most of them. Mm -hmm. Are there any legitimate functions of jealousy in the 21st century or is it all sort of a relic of a, a different time? I think the the main remaining, you know, function of sexual jealousy is mate guarding, protecting the pair bond, trying to make it so, you know, my partner doesn't kind of fall in love with someone else and then kind of wander off with them. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's legit. If you're in a serious pair bond with someone and you have a mortgage and kids together and maybe a business together the costs of breaking up are 
are, are colossal and you want to protect that, minimize. Does jealousy actually it. protect it? Well, this is the question, right? What's <laughs> the better way to protect it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like jealousy tears people apart. I mean, if it's extreme, I feel like a little bit of jealousy can, you know, be be flirty even. Like, totally, what? yeah. You're mine. What are you doing? You know, but in the extreme, the controlling behavior, I, I think is a detriment to relationships. It does not bring people together. So I think one one model for maintaining a pair bond, you know, is to say, I'm going to, I'm going to ring fence this relationship. I'm going to put barbed wire around it. It's, I'm going to make it almost impossible for my spouse to meet anyone else, flirt with anyone else, be on social media with anyone else, have any, you know, chemistry with any coworkers, like shut all that down. And then hopefully they'll never have any serious temptation. And then my marriage will be safe. Mm -hmm. Well, Maybe, but I think that doesn't actually build in very much resilience or trust. And it's, it's well, we call it abusive because it limits people's ability to move through the world. Yeah. And, you know, one of the great things about 20th century um, women's rights movement and, and feminist movement is sort of cautioning, hey, guys, you should not treat your wife as chattel, as property that you own. And that's true. But then you get into kind of a monogamous mainstream culture where it's kind of considered okay for both sexes to treat, you know, a heterosexual spouse as chattel to be extremely possessive, as long as it's kind of equal opportunity, dehumanization or possessiveness. And the, you know, the other big misconception I think about Polly is, is this view that sexual jealousy is somehow this unique emotion that's uniquely valid, that cannot be tamed, that cannot be managed, and that any attempt to question it is like weird or immoral. Yeah. Yeah. That really, I, I was thinking about that after you said it during your talk at Hereticon. Um, it is interesting. We do really put that specific emotion in a special padded box that cannot be probed or interrogated. Um, and we see it as unchangeable. Is it is it changeable for everyone? I mean, how how do you people become less jealous? Like the last episode I did was was about how we can start to change our emotional predictions. Um, so I could see that being a, a strategy, reframing it, recategorizing it as I'm not jealous. I'm this is X Y Z other emotion. Are there other techniques that you feel have been particularly useful to you in, in taming the beast? Yeah, I think there's at least three that help. Um, number one is, and, and most of these apply not just to jealousy, but to any emotion you're trying to manage. Cool. Okay. So we have anger management courses where mm-hmm. you go and you learn just because you have an angry expression or like some road rage on the highway does not mean you have to act on it. It doesn't right. mean the emotion is legitimate. It's up to adults to learn how to manage anger, mm-hmm. right? And if you go to work and there's like a hierarchy and people that make different amounts of money and have different amounts of status, you learn to manage your envy mm-hmm. so that you don't go around resenting people who are more successful and hopefully, you know, people who are under you don't feel envy towards you. You know, part of childhood and adolescence is learning how to manage all these emotions. 
Yeah. And partly we do it through habituation, which is just you get exposed to the situation repeatedly mm-hmm. and you don't react. You don't catastrophize. You don't make it into a big deal. You just go, oh, this is this is okay. This is survivable. What, what makes it survivable? Knowing that there are you know, more benefits to managing the emotion in the long term than in giving into the emotion. Yeah, but it's it's very painful. Je- sure. Sexual and jealousy is very painful. It's a it feels like, you know, managing your envy about someone else's pay grade seems a lot yeah. easier to me. <laughs> than, okay, that's their life, you know, but this is my partner, this is my other half, this is my soulmate, like mm-hmm. and what this person like it like calls into question your value, your relationship, your everything. I mean, it it's hard. It's when you when you're in the throes of some intense sexual jealousy, right? It feels worse than than like almost anything else. Like you have like homicidal thoughts and you have <laughs> neurotic thoughts and you right. have like, no, it's bad. It's all bad. And like uh, <sighs> And and the runaway catastrophizing of it is is kind of the worst part because you tend to ruminate about these things, yeah. And it becomes the center of your world for like an hour a day or whatever. So I think habituating and just like working through that and and living through it is important. For how long though? Years. It honestly really only took me maybe about like three to six months of pretty intensive kind of emotional work to, to kind of get past this. Okay. And I suspect that, and you know, this is someone who was doing it in, in early fifties. I suspect that if someone was making a serious go of working through it, you know, in late teenage or early twenties, they could actually do it a bit faster mm, Okay. because they wouldn't have had so many kind of patterns and thoughts. Just yeah deeply ingrained in their, their, um, their psyche. What are some other tips and hacks? I think a lot of people have these weird blind spots where like married men go, Oh, I know my wife has like a little bit of a crush on like this actor, like she's hot for Jason Momoa or she's hot for, you know, um, Brad Pitt or whoever. And you just kind of get used to that. Right. And, and guys will say, oh, that's, that's not a threat. If she reads romance novels about pirate captains, like that's not a threat. Like structurally, she is feeling desire for somebody other than you. Mm-hmm. And you've convinced yourself, hey, actually, it's not a threat to my marriage that she does that. It's not a threat. And in fact, I'd be kind of an asshole for like making a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think couples who can actually share, Hey, I've got a crush on that celebrity. I have a little bit of a thing for that singer songwriter, um, or whatever. Um, they're hot for Joe Rogan or whoever they're hot for. <laughs> right. <Hot> for Joe <laughs> Rogan. Oh, that beautiful, that beautiful, beautiful cranium. Um, <laughs> like ev- every married couple kind of knows this. And also, you know, couples who've been together for a while, they know damned well which neighbors there's a little bit of chemistry with and which other parents at their kid's school they have a little bit of a flirty thing with and which coworker, like 
you learn how to manage that. True. So you just got to level up a little. So you have to level up a bit. And, and you can use that as a foundation for, for realizing, like, even if they do somewhat more intense and intimate connections with other people, maybe that's also not that big a threat. Isn't it? Couldn't it be a threat? I think it depends a, New it depends a lot. Yeah. Well, this is the other thing is part of the, the habituation is people figuring out how to do polyamory within the first few years mm-hmm. where they have not yet had the experience of maybe an important pair bonded partner developing that crush or that new relationship energy with someone else and then letting it run its course. Right. And then coming back to you after mm-hmm. that. Like you don't once, have that experience. Once yet. you've seen that a few times, you get considerably more confident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes right? sense. That makes sense. Once your partner goes from, oh my God, there's this new n- new guy or new girl and they're just awesome and so exciting and can't wait to see them again. And then three months later, they're saying, oh my God, they just don't understand my dissertation. I can't <laughs> talk to them about political stuff. We're totally incompatible on our like aesthetic and, and social tastes. And yeah, if you have the experience of seeing that happen a few times, yes, it makes you enormously more confident that our relationship really is special. It's true. It's true. Like through poly, you can become closer. Yeah. And you can realize, oh, actually, we're really well matched yeah. on certain traits. As long as you actually are well matched. That's a key thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> if, if you're not. If you're in a relationship and like you don't remember why you chose someone and you're thinking about doing an open relationship with them Mm-mm. and you're not actually that well suited, that is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. They, they could meet someone better matched and kind of drift off. Yeah. And I, I think like I'm in a bunch of poly groups. That's like 90% of the drama in there. Well, okay, that's not 90%. A huge portion of it is jealousy, sexual jealousy. That's like the majority. But then also this sort of threat of maybe we're not as well-matched as we thought we were or we changed over the years and now like we're exploring our possibilities and uh uh-oh, here's this threat of a life without each other. You know, just a glimpse of what that would be like and maybe it wasn't as scary as they thought. So it can be very... um, destabilizing I think to some people's relationships and you have to be ready for that I think people who want to try this out they should if they feel like it's right for them but people need to go into this on fully understanding what all the possibilities are and accepting them yeah and I think it's important to have a lot of self-knowledge about like um, how emotionally stable versus neurotic you know are, are you the person thinking about doing poly? How neurotic, possessive, unstable is your partner? And then you also have to develop this whole set of kind of mate choice criteria for who else do we interact with and what are some deal breakers in terms of their approach to relationships and their level of emotional stability. And you know, Diane and I have gotten a lot more selective about um, that dimension. Oh, interesting. Of choice. Like, 
we we kind of sort of have veto power. Like if if she goes, oh, that woman seems kind of borderliney in terms of like personality disorders or unstable or super jealous or whatever. Trouble on the horizon. Yeah, I'll I'll take that very seriously and probably not pursue that or vice mm-hmm. versa. If you know there's some guy she's after who comes across as like a little bit dark triad, psychopathic, you know, not reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want that. There are people in sort of poly community who kind of thrive on polydrama. Yeah, yeah. I wonder it. about that. I'm like, yeah. It's like they're getting, some people are getting something out of it. it. seems like very toxic to me, but there's people like that even outside of the poly community, like people who just need to constantly be creating chaos around themselves. <laughs> Otherwise, they just don't know what to do with themselves. And when you throw that type of person in a poly context. Yeah. I guess we we tend to favor people who have like other shit going on in their lives and better things to do yeah. than polydrama who like have actual careers and ambitions and like they're, you know, cranking out YouTube videos or they're getting tenure or they're working on a book or they're investing in crypto or like whatever they're doing. You guys are just dating all the cool people, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> we, tr- we try. <laughs> Yeah, but but having people having a, a source of meaning and stability in their life outside of their relationship seems very wise, you know, so yeah. that there aren't um, problematic attachments and dynamics created in the relationship. Yeah. So it sounds like you approach it very collaboratively. Yeah, I th- I think it helps enormously that my wife is also an evolutionary psychologist. Yeah. We both thought pretty deeply about human emotions and we've taught courses on human emotions and about human sexuality. Mm-hmm. And whenever th- things get a little rocky, we can always kind of go meta and like go one level up and go, let's, let's be kind of scientific and analytical about what's really going on here. Yeah. Yeah. That I think is helpful even for people who aren't professionally trained scientists you know, to, to try to be a little more analytical and take a step back together can be a good exercise. <laughs> yeah. Um, I sent you a video mm-hmm. of one of my friends. He, he made, uh, Chris Fleming, he made a video about polyamory, a music video. Um, it's funny because Chris and his girlfriend are very sex positive, very, you know, forward thinking people. And I have noticed this sort of, that there's like a... Um, Polyculture kind of gets a bad rep, you know, gets a bad reputation. Um, you have even people like Chris who are being like, there's something nefarious about these conversations or when I'm in this community, I feel unsafe. I was just wondering if you had any experiences or insight on why that is, because I actually feel very similar to Chris. Not, not as much anymore, but when I was younger, and I was first getting involved in sex positive stuff. If it all felt very predatory and nefarious, the the poly stuff, like old, older couples approaching me when I was like nineteen or twenty, and like pushing boundaries in ways that made me feel uncomfortable. You know, what's up with that? No, I, I think there is. Um, there's a few things going on, right? One thing is there's such intense anti polyamory stigma. Yeah. That. There's an awful lot of people out there who are in open relationships or they're swingers or they're they're poly, but on the down low. 
yeah. quietly because they know like it could blow up their their schooling or their career or their relationships with their neighbors or their friends or their extended family if they came out super mm-hmm. publicly right so there's a selection effect where the people who are out and are loud about being poly often are like the people who are the most eccentric the most extroverted have the least to lose Mm, like don't don't have the same reputational concerns okay and it actually reminds me of like you know when i started going to college in uh in new york in the early 80s at columbia there was still enough homophobia and kind of anti-gay stigma that the gay guys who were out tended to be kind of like a little loud and obnoxious and flamboyant and like kind of in your face yeah, it's true. The most right. vocal ones. And then there was a whole other set who were just kind of quietly gay and just like did their thing. So to the the naive young college boy like me, like having a <laughs> bunch of like really flamboyantly extroverted like gay New York dudes hit on you is it like it can be uncomfortable for a minute and then you kind of get used to it and you figure out here's how to like police my boundaries and whatever sure um but if i generalized from that to go oh all gay people are creepy right right that would have been unfair people kind of stop thinking oh like all gay men who talk to me really want me like sex from me Mm -hmm. like no probably there's a lot of projection there Mm mm-hmm (laughs) <laughs> yeah there's some of that so too. i think that's part of what's going on with poly now is is people like don't know how to interact with um other people who just have different relationship rules right there's a little learning curve but w- what you're saying about the eccentric people being the loudest makes sense i feel like that's the case for so many things i also think maybe part of it is just like sex positive spaces in general tend to be I mean, coming from a Mormon background, it was like very, it's very intense, you know, to just suddenly be in this place where people seem to have no taboos about sex. <laughs> so that was probably part of it too. Yeah. Like I've, I've been to a few BDSM uh, conferences and workshops and, you know, whole hotel takeovers. And if you're not used to that kind of context, like it's really striking to see sex positive people in their like 60s, 70s. Yeah. Being completely comfortable with nudity and really owning their masculinity or femininity or or whatever. And you're just not used to seeing that. And it's a little freaky at first. I think also a lot of people don't like to suddenly feel like they're the square one. They're the normie. Like they're the person who suddenly has to confront just how sex negative they really are how filled with shame or discomfort about their body or their desires they really are sure and that feels kind of threatening and 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 shitty to me and i don't know how to process that yeah i feel like i see this all the time on twitter with people talking about like books and stuff or sex ed in schools people just immediately ascribe nefarious intent to teachers and stuff who are teaching about sexuality or who are having conversations about this stuff 
it, it does feel like that reaction that I see all the time is what you're describing, like maybe an uncomfortable confrontation with our own shame. I'm not the bad one. You're the bad one. You're the creepy one. You're the weird one, you know? Yeah. And I, th- I think the sad thing is what, what you end up with then is a lot of um, relationships and marriages where people really aren't being honest with each other about their sexual desires and their, their kinks and their, their hangups. And like, you can, you can have like a perfectly happy 60 year marriage where there's like a lot of don't ask, don't tell. And it's like, we're not going to share any information about who else we find attractive or who we're flirting with or, you know, which actor we think is hot. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's pretty stupid because it means those couples never actually end up explicitly negotiating what counts as cheating and what doesn't count as cheating. Maybe it's scary to negotiate that. It's super scary, but hey, if you don't, you're going to be surprised. One person's going to end up in a situation where they think something is allowed or they convince themselves it's okay. Yeah. And then the other person's surprised and goes, how dare you think that was okay? Mm Mm-hmm. And it could be as simple as like, whatever, um, you know, suburban guy watches porn and maybe he's never had the discussion with his wife about is watching porn cheating, is liking a hot photo of an ex-girlfriend on Facebook cheating, is having a slightly flirty text conversation with a coworker cheating. Like if you don't discuss these things, you're not going to have a resilient marriage because mm-hmm. each person will be surprised at some point and outraged and angry. And and it's a missed opportunity to know each other and perhaps even to know yourself. You know, how does this make me feel? What do I think about porn? You know, what do I think about you following your ex on Facebook or whatever it might be? <laughs> I want to talk to you about the like macro level stuff um the societal implications of poly i mean what if everyone in society hypothetical obviously just suddenly decided to become poly how would that affect people in our relationships and in society as a whole well we'd have five years of glorious total chaos right (laughs) until everybody figured out (laughs) what's going on and how to manage it I think what people need to, uh, you know, remember is that we are a species that tends to naturally form pretty intense long-term pair bonds. I think pair bonding runs pretty deep. That does not mean lifelong sexual exclusivity is natural. It just means like pairing up is a pretty efficient way to like run long-term relationships that involve like living together and taking care of kids together. Mm -hmm. But within the context of that, there's a lot of different degrees of sexual exclusivity and romantic exclusivity that people can kind of negotiate. So I'm not one of these people who believes in relationship anarchy, which is the concept that like you should avoid having any labels for what a relationship is or expectations about where it's going to go or um, any definitions or constraints around it. I think that's, 
incredibly naive and and just dumb because I I can't imagine it would work in any viable long-term way with people actually have mortgages and businesses and kids and serious commitments and serious stakes in a relationship. Yeah. Sort of an advocate of what's called hierarchical polyamory where you say, okay, like this is my primary pair bond and then I have secondary partners who I see once in a while and we're going to negotiate all of that in a way that everybody understands and is is clear and there's like common knowledge about what's happening and it's fully, you know, honest and disclosed. But where you're clear with the secondary partner like I'm not going to leave my primary for you. Yeah. This is not going to you're not going to be like promoted to primary if you're not. Like these are the constraints on where this relationship is and where it could go. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's very important. I think you could you could have a society that functions very well with hierarchical poly. Yeah, yeah, because then everyone still has like you said that deep companionship. So if we have this hierarchical reorganization, hierarchical poly reorganization in society, another thing that I thought was interesting that you were talking about was, you know, is it the case that men who have a hard time forming relationships are going to have an easier time if if everyone's poly? Or could it actually be harder? You know, let's assume a heterosexual paradigm here for ease. You're going to have women who are gravitating toward the men who have the financial, emotional physical resources, more women are going to go toward a smaller group of men, right? What's it called? Hypergamy? Yeah, hypergamy. So this is a tricky issue, and I've thought a lot about it. I I talked about it somewhat in that Hereticon talk. I talked about it uh, in a Quillette article I did about polyamory also. And it's kind of the Jordan Peterson argument for monogamy, which is, if you imagine ranking all the males right? And then ranking all the females from like best to worst, whatever that means in terms of mate value. Monogamy tends to push like everybody matches up and like does the best they can Mm -hmm. in a kind of mating market. And that means the people who are lower down have at least some hope allegedly of finding a mate, right? Because the top males can't monopolize a whole harem. The problem is that only works if you actually have something close to a lifelong monogamy system with early marriage and no divorce. If you have people reaching like puberty in their their mid-teens and then not getting married for another 15 years until like late 20s, early 30s, then they're going to be spending their whole teen and 20s years in this kind of Tinder free-for-all of like short and medium term relationships where actually the inequalities get amplified dramatically mm-hmm. where like the top 1% of most handsome fit guys on Tinder are getting like half of all the dates. You had a yeah. whole video about this, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is. And that's what's going on. Yeah. You have a very small number of guys monopolizing the entire female dating market. <laughs> so polyamory actually reduces that inequality. Because poly relationships tend to last longer and they take more energy. They last longer? Poly is not about casual sex. It's not polyfuckery. It's polyamory. You're supposed to have romantic (laughs) feelings 
where right. you form some relationship and you know if you have a secondary partner hopefully it lasts at least like a few months or a couple of years or something and so you can't have like one male monopolizing like 10 secondary partner women okay in a sustained way the way that like the top male could could monopolize one night stands so compared to like a casual sex dating culture where you really do have like this this 80-20 problem of like the top ones getting like polyamory actually blunts that, actually reduces that inequality hmm. compared to the casual sex. But of course it can still lead to more inequality than a strict monogamy. But we don't have strict monogamy anyway. Because people break up and they get divorced. They're not with the same person their entire life, usually. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there is a particular concern about like, well, what about the lower status, less attractive males, like the incels? What about them? Um, if you're like a frustrated incel, and I've, I've spoken to many of them when we did the Mating Grounds podcast like five or six years ago. Oh, interesting. These guys would call in with their problems and their woes and their frustrations. Mm-hmm. A guy like that who doesn't understand women, doesn't understand relationships, he's much more likely to be able to date a poly woman like as a potential secondary partner, right? If he has something of interest, something he can offer her, she might be willing to say, yeah, okay, fine. You can be a secondary partner. I will help you past your virginity. I will help level you up. I will teach you about women and relationships. (laughs) She might be willing to do that for this guy if he's got something to offer. Yeah. When she might not be willing to say, okay, you can be my primary boyfriend. Yeah. Right. So being someone secondary can be like training wheels to kind of level you up. Huh. So you become like sort of worthy of becoming someone's primary. Hmm. That's interesting. Like a relationship training camp. For people who have struggled I've with it. I've seen this work. I really have seen this work in really? some particular subcultures I, I'm familiar with. Particularly, there's a set of kind of um, sex-positive, quite altruistic women who are like, I'm going to specialize in taking quite Aspie guys, like nerdy Aspergery guys, mm-hmm. and level up their sexual confidence. I can see it working better actually for people with Asperger's than the incel crowd. And the reason being that men with Asperger's, this is my perception as a woman, do not threaten me. They only, you know, are maybe having a hard time making sense of the social norms and cues and you need to be, I need to be extremely blunt to make it work, you know, and they, they learn. You know, there's like there's a learning curve and you have those uncomfortable conversations where you say the quiet part out loud a lot mm-hmm. and then they learn with the incel stuff. Well, now we're talking about men who express open rage toward women. I'm not going to be your camp counselor. You know, like I feel physically, sexually, emotionally threatened by that. So it makes sense for someone who's who is maybe just having social awkwardness, but not social rage. 
if that is, if it's, you know, we're going to look at the incel phenomenon through an evolutionary uh, lens, is it really going to help them? What woman wants to put up with a violent jerk? You know? Yeah, I th- I think there's a lot of different kinds of incels, right? I think there is some overlap between incels and and That's true. People. They're not all violent jerks, but there's um, enough of them. <laughs> and, you know, there's certainly some pretty toxic, like, online incel communities that are very misogynistic and 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 pretty messed up but i think there's a lot of um there's a lot of young men out there who are very unhappy with the current kind of mating market and current dating norms Mm -hmm. and who seem to think well if i can't get a kind of traditional style boyfriend girlfriend relationship with you know, a quality woman who I'm really attracted to, that's like the only game that they think is worth playing. Like a lot of them aren't even willing to consider other relationship patterns, not even willing to consider polyamory. It's like, Mm. I'd rather be a desperate homicidal incel than a cuck. Yeah. Right. It's just like emotional problems, you know? So yeah, people, they need to be in therapy. Except most therapists don't understand this stuff either. That's right? true. Most therapists get a fair amount of training about here's how to handle gay or lesbian clients. And most therapists get zero training about here's how to handle swingers, open or poly people. Just to wrap, wrap all this up. Oh yeah. At the macro level. Um, I guess like the two big things I worry about in the next 10 or 20 years are number one, the big threats to monogamy based on technology. And number two, the kind of economic threats to business as usual in terms of people's jobs and income and automation Mm -hmm. and like how we're all going to make a living in 20 years. Like the technological threats to traditional monogamous marriage, we're, we're not at all braced for, I think. You know, Mark Zuckerberg makes a big deal out of like the metaverse and we're all going to spend a bunch of time in virtual reality. And and what we'll be doing in virtual reality is having really earnest corporate meetings. <laughs> Some people might be doing that, but an awful lot of people will be doing what humans tend to do, which is flirt and fall in love and have various kinds of virtual sex and like seek sexual validation and watch virtual porn and deep fakes and whatever. Yeah. And man, I, I, you know, if I was in my early twenties, um, thinking about marriage, I would be thinking, okay, how are we going to negotiate how we deal with that new sexual technological landscape for the rest of our lives? When like the technology of virtual and romantic interaction is just going to get more and more powerful so that you'll basically be able to have any kind of consensual connection you want with anybody on the planet. I think the the people who don't brace for that are going to be shocked by how difficult it is to do a kind of traditional monogamous marriage. Do you think those things are a, a legitimate threat to real-world relationships? 
I think they don't need to be mm-hmm. if if you figure out like here's what I'm going to be jealous about and here's what I'm not going to be jealous about or here's what counts as a threat here's what's above my line of concern mm-hmm. versus here's what is below my line of concern mm-hmm. um, but I think it'll be important for couples to kind of match each other more or less about that stuff yeah or at least to have a complementary set of of rules and expectations about how to how to manage these things thank you so much to jeffrey miller for all of his help on this episode you can keep up with him on twitter at primal poly and learn more about his work at primalpoly.com thanks for joining me i'll see you again soon